This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Liverpool run riots. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that there are also some off-pit activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week it's two up top. That means in the line and wearing the captain's armband is Matthew. So Matthew, how have you been since we last spoke? I have been absolutely fantastic. It's uh, It was a good weekend following Fulham. My voice is a little bit worse for wear as a result of it, but that's what happens when you score four goals and end up um, shouting at Nottingham Forest fans for leaving early. But let's just hope I can make I can make it all the way through. But other than that, I'm feeling fantastic. I can feel you're beaming already. So yes, let's hope the voice holds out for the full 60. And Max, you're back in the fold after a week off. How have you been since we spoke a fortnight ago? Yeah, very good. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. And yeah, really looking forward to, to getting into it today. Fantastic. Before we chat all things Prem, I best do the social media bits, otherwise we'll be talking into the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy, nice and 83. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, that being Sports Social. So check out the URL and all the links posted throughout the week on the Real Football Pod account. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review so we move up the league table. Also, I need to mention my content partner, that being betting.com. For all the tips and predictions that you'll ever need, go to that website. And the easy way to find all the links is by going to linktree slash realfootballcast, but a dot between the R and the E, and then you get 10 podcast platforms. It's never been easier to listen to this show. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? We can only go to Old Trafford and Sunday's sensational win for Liverpool over Manchester United. Matthew, last week we spoke about Solskjaer always managing to turn things around when the pressure is on. 
I think after Sunday showing, that pressure is mounting even further. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, there are reports starting to come out now that... Um... Uh, that they they asked that the, the the initial seeds have been planted in terms of doubt they're starting to consider his position, as it were. You know whether or not it's going to be ultimately lead to the sacking, but at least the discussions have taken place. So it it does seem to be in a sense the the straw that broke the camel's back, and it just couldn't happen in you know in a in a worse way. You know after you know after the pressure he's had, if he'd have you know managed to get a draw something like that, it would have been fine. Even like a last minute loss sort of thing, if they'd have gone down to ten men early and only lost it one nil, you can you might okay, you can sort of work that out. But to lose in the manner that they did five nil at home to their you know to their biggest historical rivals, and to see the fans leaving you know on the sixty minute mark and you know as it were, it it is you know the the perfect storm as well you know it is that. It is it is the worst case scenario for for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and, that, and yeah, you can sort of understand why those doubts might now start to be creeping in if this is what happens when he's under pressure. So Max, after such an embarrassing defeat at the hands of Liverpool, you know this isn't just any defeat. It's a Liverpool, b it's at home, c it's five nil. It's awful, as Matthew alludes to. So as Matthew also says, the seeds are being planted, the machinations are happening in the background. Are we at the point already? where it's last chance to loon come Saturday if they lose to Spurs in North London. Uh, yeah, yeah. Firstly, can I just say it's fantastic hearing hearing Matthew's voice like that. It sounds like Sean Dyche has joined us on the pod. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, uh, to be honest, I think he, he might not even make Saturday. Really? Um, I know that United are kind of keen to, to, to stick by him, or they, they have been keen to stick by him, because obviously he signed a new three-year deal this summer, which is in hindsight, not looking like a very, um, a very good decision. Um, but yeah, if, if he does last until Saturday, I think they'll want a, a sudden and clear improvement in, you know, performance, if not performance and result, um, to, to kind of spare him. And to be honest, I think it's, it's only a matter of time now. I think that if, had they already agreed, uh, you know, terms with, for example, Zidane or, or Conte or someone like that, I think, you know, Solskjaer, Solskjaer wouldn't be in a job. And, you know, I can't, I do understand that um, that Gary Neville, when he was talking on Sky um, about, you know, the media kind of being responsible for sacking people by constantly talking about it and loads of headlines. And obviously, as, as someone who works in the media, you know, I have to kind of think about my own responsibility in, in all of that. But at the same time, you know, United were not good enough. And they don't have a clear identity. And that was one of the worst at the weekend. That was one of the worst results in Premier League history, in my opinion. And so and I think a lot of people would share that opinion. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's completely fair for people to be talking about um, Solskjaer getting the sack because, you know, it's not working out at the moment. And, and yeah, I can only see it ending one way. Matthew, on the flip side to that, if they do win against Spurs, we're back to what we kind of mentioned last week, this kind of boom and bust cycle where Oli always seems to just pull himself off the precipice, off the cliff, and then he's kind of um, he's on firm ground again, isn't he? So that's all very well if Man United win, but we're only going to have this discussion three, four weeks down the line. At what point did the board say, do you know what, we've got to break this cycle. We can't keep getting caught in these lulls and these peaks and we have to go in a new direction. Is it closer than we think? I don't think it's, I don't think it's that I don't think it's that close. Like I, I do think he'll be able to survive this week and going through. I think 
it would be similar to what David Moyes was with um, when he got sacked at Man United, because they reached a point where it just became obvious that they, in that season, were not going to make. Uh, come if it was mathematically out of the Champions League or mathematically out of Europe altogether. But there was one point that it got to where they said, "Right, we cannot get any further." I think that's what it's going to be with Solskjaer once the writing is firmly, because they are, you know, still in the title mix, as it were, in terms of how far they are. You no. Know, maybe not performance-wise, but in terms of points in the table. Um, you know, they're still reasonably in with the shout of doing well in the Champions League. So I think it's going to be a case of Wednesday, when they actually can see, right, this is definitely not going anywhere. That's what I think they're ultimately, you know, if, if indeed he does get to that stage again, he may pull this round because we know what he does. But I think it's going to have to be something more concrete than just a couple of bad results. It's going to have to be right. We are out of all you know, cup competitions and we are 20 points off the league title and 10 points off Europe. It's going to have to be something like that where they can actually see bad things are coming rather than just leaving it to hearsay and chant. So I think he's probably still got a little bit more time yet, even if he does lose um, against Spurs this weekend. Okay, then, Max, let's say things aren't going well for Oli and he loses to Spurs on Saturday, but he's still in the job. Do you think United will do something similar to Newcastle? We'll get to them in a bit where they'll just get rid of the manager and then have to worry about an appointment to follow thereafter. I don't know, someone like, um, who's the, uh, I can't remember his name now. Who's the Scottish midfielder who played for Manchester United? Yes, that's the one. He could be the interim boss in the sort of in the short term or however the term needs to be and then they look for Zidane and Conte or will there be backroom discussions with one of those two names I've just mentioned ready to take over straight away how do you reckon it would pan out if it pans out yeah yeah that, that's that's interesting I think yeah if if um if if the results and performances continue to be so bad that it just becomes clear that they really need a change even if they haven't lined someone up then he will go and they'll just trust Fletcher or Carrick or whoever to kind of see them through temporarily until until they they, they appoint someone. Um, I think, to be honest, the fact that Zidane and Conte, who you know I understand are top of their 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 kind of four man shortlist along with Pochettino and Rodgers. Rodgers and Pochettino would be difficult to extract from their clubs mid season. And I, to be honest, I don't think either of them would come mid-season at least um but the fact that Zidane and Conte who are kind of two world-class names in management who've got really good uh records at least of trophies um at their previous clubs even though you know they've, they've had a little bit of turbulence as well um I think the fact that both of them are out of contract will mean that theoretically it should be fairly easy for United to kind of agree a deal deal with them although I imagine they'll both have very 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 high um wage demands for example and, and contract demands but I don't think that'll be a problem for United you know if there was a situation where you know all the big names in management were basically taken by other clubs I think they might think actually let's you know give Oli until January or maybe even until the end of the year if there's a very sudden and dramatic pickup in um in how they're playing but I, I don't think they're going to be you know worried about having a caretaker manager because obviously Oli was a caretaker manager and so you know that they know that they've done that before and it's and it's worked all right and there's been a, even a little bit of a bounce when um, a caretaker manager has taken over and, and you know everything's kind of a little bit fresher having got gotten rid of someone unpopular and yeah it's interesting to see the boot on the other foot now now Oli is the unpopular manager who's kind of stinking up the club and um, as you know Mourinho and Van Hal did did before him 
And, you know, I, I wonder who the caretaker is going to be, but I don't think they'll have any qualms about giving it to someone temporarily until they until they find a permanent solution. OK, then that's all conjecture. Let's focus on what happened on Sunday. We could spend a lot of time going through each of the Liverpool goals, but we don't really have that time. So let's look at the discipline or the lack thereof from a United point of view. Matthew, I'll start with you. I'm going to offer up the Paul Pogba selling off. Do you think that was the correct decision for the French international to get his marching orders? I think I think it was certainly one that could have gone either you know, could have gone either way. I think again, this is where one of the the VAR thing maybe slowing it down makes it look worse than it should. Because I wasn't um, I didn't see the incident um, the first time because I was on, on my way driving back from Nottingham from the Fulham game. So it's something that I heard on the radio, and again the way it's been described and everything. So I didn't really see it until match of the day that night. Um, but when I first saw it, I thought, oh, that's a yellow because I think he's got the ball. You know, in a clean way, it's not reckless. When you first see it, it, it looked fine. When it gets slowed down, you can kind of see why a red may have been given. I think it may be a case of you know erring on the side of caution in terms of player safety. But I don't think I think if that had been a yellow card and stayed a yellow card, I don't think there would have been you know much uproar um, in that sense. I don't think there would have been many oh shit Pogba have been sent off, you know, is he a dirty player or anything like that? So I think it's certainly one that could have gone I could have gone either way. I personally would have gone with a yellow, but you can understand why in this day and age you can understand why he went with a red. Yep, that's a perfect explanation of that one. Max, for you, it's Cristiano Ronaldo and his very obvious petulance towards Curtis Jones. It's fair to say he had two bites at the Liverpool midfielder while the Liverpool midfielder was on the deck. Do you think the Portuguese icon should have been giving his marching orders and if Obviously he didn't, but has his big name stature done him a favour with the referees thought, well, actually, I can't send off such a big name in such a big occasion? Um, potentially. It's always difficult to, to know whether referees are affected by that kind of thing. As I've spoken about before lots and lots of times, um, I think referees are kind of subconsciously uh, affected by definitely by the team that's playing and kind of by, by, the, by the home crowd. And, and things like that. So maybe it kind of it, it kind of bled into his decision making at the weekend because yeah, I mean, I, Pogba's I, I think was a clear red. Um, I, I think Liverpool might have been exaggerating a little bit, or Klopp might have been exaggerating a little bit when he said after the game that uh, United could have had five reds. I think that's probably a little bit OTT. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, Ronaldo's kick it was really petulant, and it felt like he was taking out his frustrations on the game from the game uh, in that incident and just the fact that the ball happened to be kind of by um, Jones's stomach he kind of took advantage and he knows if the ball wasn't there that obviously that's a red card every single day of the week um, and he just kind of took advantage that the ball was somewhat nearby and was just having a couple of swipes at him not as you say not only one but I think two or even three um, so I think he is lucky because it you know that could easily be classified as as violent conduct um, yeah, with that one, it's a little bit more, um, it could go either way. I, personally, I think the Pogba one was, was a clear red. And I don't think there was, I think there was particularly any malice in it. Um, you know, I, I think he just kind of lost control of the ball and it was a little bit reckless, but that is, you know, potentially a leg breaker. Um, and we obviously saw that Cater went off injured afterwards. So, um, yeah, it, yeah, the United did lose their discipline on, on on Sunday, and I, I understand that it's you know it's frustrating when you're losing, but but you just can't resort to that kind of thing because you know then you lose a man and it gets even worse for you. 
Absolutely. Now, Matthew, last week we spoke about Mo Salah and him potentially being the best player in the world right now. With a performance such as what we saw on Sunday, it's becoming increasingly difficult to make a case against such a statement. Yeah, I think it does because when you take into it, it is one of the things that is sort of you know doing it on the big stage is part of it. And whilst you know Manchester United, as they showed you know throughout the whole game and and recently showed that they're not exactly the big, it is still the occasion of Manchester United versus Liverpool at Old Trafford, Super Sunday, all that stuff. So to be able to put on the performance that he did in such in such a big occasion and with. In fairness, with such ease as well, and against the goalkeeper in David Ayer, who some some uh, argue, uh, I don't know whether or not it's, it's so much now, but in the past has been regarded as the best goalkeeper in the world. So to do it on such a stage like that against against an opponent like that, I think does weigh, you know, does does give some uh, does give some validity to the argument. If you were to, I I personally I'm personally don't agree with that. I'm I'm in the Erling Haaland camp personally, but if you are in the Salah camp. There's there's enough evidence there for you to make your for you to make your case satisfactorily, as it were. Matthew has nailed his colours to the mast. He's going for Haaland. I mean, it's it's a very difficult question to answer because, as I've said many times before, it's a team sport. So to pick one player is very subjective, isn't it? And there's so many different criteria. Is it big game performances? Is it winning trophies? Does an international tournament help your case? Do you know what I mean? There's so many ifs and buts. So it's kind of hard to nail down one player. But as you say. Matthew, you could make a very strong case for Haaland, and you have in the past. Salah fans can do exactly the same. Lewandowski fans can point to his Bundesliga record. It will go on and on and on. But more importantly, it's just nice. It's not Messi versus Ronaldo, as we said last week. But Max, at the other end of the pitch for Liverpool, Ibrahima Conte's performance shouldn't go unnoticed. He's not had many starts this season, but he was pretty imperious at Old Trafford, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And look, he, he'll have harder games. Right? Oh, yeah. He wasn't he wasn't that, that, that tested. But at the same time, I don't think we should overlook um, his his performance because he, he was really, um, he, as you say, he was imperious. He was really calm. He was really confident. And he's only 22. And the fact that they've that they've got him for I think it was something like 35 million was his release clause. You know, in this day and age, that that's pretty cheap, especially for someone who has a lot of room to grow, um, considering his his age. You know, and they've got the perfect player um, because you know Matip and to an extent Gomez are kind of there at the moment as as really good partners to to, to Van Dyke. But Canate is someone that they can just put in for for every game that Klopp sees fit. It won't be every game. But, you know, um, every time that Klopp thinks it's it's worth putting him in, um, he can put him in and, you know, kind of slowly get him accustomed to the physicality of the league, to the expectations um, and the performance levels expected at Liverpool. And, you know, then in two or three years, a little bit like Guardiola's done with Foden, when you've kind of integrated him into that first team a little bit, he's going to be a class, class player. He's really, really good. And, I mean, how many amazing centre-backs do France have? It's just ridiculous. They've got like eight world-class centre-backs. <laughs> um, and yeah, it just shows that, um, yeah, he Liverpool have got such strength and depth that arguably their their fourth-choice centre-back is, you know, as good as maybe Manchester United's best centre-back. And yeah, he was, he was really good. And so I think Liverpool fans are going to be absolutely purring about the prospect of seeing more of him. Yeah, he's a very exciting talent. And as you say, he can only really get better, more football for him. And it's looking like a very dangerous proposition for other Premier League attacks because they might not get anything out of him. But let's move to Stamford Bridge now because Norwich got nothing out of Chelsea and they all, 
also conceded seven goals for their troubles. Now, Matthew, I know you requested the floor on this one. I don't know what's coming, but the floor is very much yours, so hit me. Well, I'll be brutally honest. Um, I, I, I think I may have jumped the gun here because I thought this was going to be one of the in the roundup section. Like, oh, no, it, no. it seemed a bit like another. But I'll, I'll make my point anyway. Does anyone remember the argument a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago? I can't remember when it was or who it was exactly, but made the point about an 18 team Premier League um, uh, to get rid of the dross like no. Jamie O'Hara. Something. It was Jamie O'Hara. That was a Jamie O'Hara. Now. now, I just want to say I don't agree with Jamie O'Hara. So I'm in favour of a 20 team Premier League. I'm, I, I don't agree with what Jamie O'Hara said. But when you look at Norwich, what they did on Sunday and their performances, you kind of see where he's coming from because I, it just baffles me that again, it like what are Norwich really offering this season? It it I know it's it probably is bad for me to say it, but what are they offering that like it just doesn't. What is the excitement for Norwich fans this season if they can go to? I mean, I know. I mean, last time when they were in the Premier League, they beat Manchester City. Uh, I think it was I think it was three two or two yeah. one or something like that. But I mean, so it's there's something there clearly. But then to just turn up at Stamford Bridge and lose seven nil in the in the same it, and with no hope of what you're doing this season, like their current points projection puts them on eight points for the season, which is lower than the Derby 11 of 0708. Like I just, again, I just want to, I want to make it clear. I'm not in favor of the 18 team argument, but when they put in a performance like that, you can kind of see where they're coming from. Okay. Well, Max, let's see your stance on that. Would you agree with an 18 team Premier League? That's four less matches per season for England internationals. It could help the national team as well. Ease that fixed congestion, which has been an issue for, for decades now. Are we going that way? Um, I don't think so. And to be honest, I'm I'm completely fine with the with the twenty team league. I mean, potentially you you could look into it because I do think there is, you know, there's something to be said for for easing the the fixture congestion given the demands on players and you know the injuries that are resulting and that kind of thing. And if anything, you know, it looks like game there are going to be more games happening. You know, with all the weird like winter world cup coming up and and everything like that so you know i i think definitely we need to explore the idea of like a of a winter break or you know restructuring the international window or something like that but yeah i mean it's it's tough on norwich because i think they've they've been they've been in a couple of games this season and you know that they kept two clean sheets in a row before this game um they really should have won against brighton i think it was um, they had some real chances, and I just think that they're kind of a little bit st- stuck in a rut at the moment. And maybe, uh, as I've said before, maybe that was to do with their very difficult start to the season. And once you lose a lot of games in a row, it means that um, kind of necessarily you're you're quite low on confidence, and the manager feels like he has to be changing players and things like that. Um, and yeah, it, it's tough because. At the start of the season, they started out kind of playing four at the back and, and with, you know, traditional wingers or, or, or wide forwards. And, you know, Rashika was playing, who I think is a good player, and Solis as well, another one of their summer signings, Campwell, before he got injured. Um, but as a result of them conceding so many goals at the start of the season, which I think was probably more a reflection of the, the level of the teams they were playing, they've now gone to five at the back, which means that not only are they... Um, still bad at the back it hasn't helped with that but they're also looking much less threatening up front as well 
um, which is obviously a real problem for them because at least the Norwich of two years ago that got relegated, you know, they concede a lot, but they would, you know, they'd score a couple um, of goals as well and that you feel like they'd be in games and they might be able to, you know, have a 1-1 or 2-2 draw or at least kind of keep themselves in the game with the likes of Puki and Campwell and Buendia. Obviously, they've lost Buendia, who's a massive loss. Um, yeah, I mean, looking at their goals total, they've scored two and conceded 23 that, this season and that's just in nine games. That's pretty... That's pretty shambolic. That's pretty abysmal. But at the same time, I, yeah, I don't think, um, yeah, I, I don't think, um, I don't think we should be talking about getting rid of them from the league or changing the league structure just because we've got a, a weak team here. And I think they will surpass Derby's total from that, from that horrible season. Um, I think 0607 or something like that. But yeah, um, it, it was a pretty, it was a pretty bad result for them. But I mean, things, things can only get better. You'd hope. Well, Max, I'll stay with you. Can they get better if they get rid of Daniel Farker? Are the board showing a lack of ambition? Because I know Norwich fans or fans of championship clubs can say, well, you don't want to be a Derby County in the sense of not just that low points tally, but look at them now. They mortgaged the club and trying to get to the Premier League. They failed, and now they've got a huge financial millstone around their neck. So Norwich are doing the right things in terms of the balance sheet, but that's not transferring to football. If you look at Farker, he's already took the club down, whether that's relative failure or not, because again, they're kind of yo-yoing, but that is a relegation against his name. It looks like a second one. Do they give him the full season or do they say, look, we're not going to spend the money, that's fine, but we've got to have a go. Does a go come from a new man with new ideas at charge? Um, Potentially. Potentially. Um, I think what's probably more likely for them to explore is is, um, maybe getting a coach in to, to... assist Farker a little bit like Graham Jones at Newcastle and they can kind of hope to revamp their attack or defense or both or, or you know set pieces or whatever and kind of give a, a, a fresh um, take on things at the training ground because I'm, I'm totally supportive of the way Norwich do things in terms of their you know the way they manage their money and things like that and they're not throwing silly money at it to be fair this season I think they spent something like 50 million in the transfer market and fair enough because you know it is worth spending to try and stay up as opposed to last time when they only spent like two million or something and and, and obviously their squad was weak but I mean their squad still looks weak having spent um 50 million but I mean generally they they are doing things in, in a very sustainable way and in a way which means they're not going to probably have have, have uh, what happened to Derby and numerous other clubs where they're in massive kind of financial meltdown because of overspending and, and desperately trying to reach the Premier League. And you know what? It's difficult because losing by by so much every week and kind of going into the season, almost knowing that you're going to go down, you can say, well, that's not very ambitious. But on the other side of the coin, um, they are doing it in a sustainable way. If they do go down this year, their favourites to bounce straight back up again. And, you know, Crystal Palace had several years of being a yo-yo club, going down, going straight back up, going straight back down. And, you know, arguably that's just one of the stages that you have to go through in your life cycle before you can become a regular Premier League team. And I think Palace went through that stage and are now a regular Premier League team. You know, there is going to be a stage when your club is arguably too good for the championship and, you know, not good enough for the Premier League. You could say Fulham are one of those teams now at the moment. They're in the championship, obviously. Bournemouth as well, maybe. And, you know, those kind of teams are likely to go up from the Championship, but are also likely to go down from the Premier League. I think that's just, you know, one of the stages you go through as a club. And then if 
Norwich and Fulham and Bournemouth and the likes of these teams invest well and, you know, kind of take that next step, um, then, you know, maybe they can start becoming one of those teams that kind of regularly finishes lower mid-table and then maybe start looking a little bit further forward. Whether Fark is the man to do that, do that at Norwich, you know, that that's another question. Um, I think Norwich will, will, will stick by him, to be honest. Okay, some excellent points there. And Matthew, you being a Fulham fan, you're in the perfect position to answer some of those questions. So let's kind of strip back a bit on those. Max mentioned Palace doing their own yo-yo version. That's all well and good, and that's absolutely correct. But is the landscape of the Premier League and the Championship different now, that it's much harder to then kind of break through that yo-yo cycle, that we are getting a Norwich or West Brom, even yourselves, Fulham, just caught in that trap where they can't kind of kick on in their life cycle. So we are where we are, where they're going to be always flitting between one division and the next. Now, does that say the golf is too big? Do we have to look at parachute payments and their set up? Do they have to change? Do they have to be dropped? What's your take on that kind of chasm between two divisions? Well, I think it depends on what your club's sort of mindset is, because I, I remember reading somewhere, I can't remember what it was, but Norwich City, their owners see themselves, they want to be a top 26 yes. seat, uh, top 26 side. So they are perfectly fine with bouncing up and you know, bouncing up and down the division because they get, you know, the excitement of getting promotion and they get the money in the Premier League and so on and so forth. They don't mind as long as they're in that bit where they can get the Premier League money every couple of seasons, then they're fine. If that's what your sort of aims and ambitions are as a club, in fairness, you know what? Go for it. I mean, it, immediate your season has purpose to it. You know, you're either fighting a relegation or you're getting promoted. It it gives you something rather than just being, for the sake of argument, you know, a Burnley or a Stoke for all those years that were just there to survive. You know, we're just being in a Premier League, as it were. So I think it really does depend on what your club's ambitions are. So that will dictate what your uh, mantra is and what your uh, policies are. Like like you mentioned, Fulham, I don't want to be the club that goes up and down. The I want us to be, um, let's see, to an extent, probably not in the same time span or the same ambitions, but someone like a Leicester, you know, one day you get promoted, stay up one year and then sort of start moving your way up the table. I think that's what clubs should be aiming for. Again, whether or not it's sustainable, whether or not it's a decent idea with the, you know, with the goal for money and the parachute payments that, you know, clubs get, which means it's a constant stream is, is it, is it, is a different manner. But I think that's what most clubs should be aiming for. I don't think that the Premier League should be the, you know, the be all and end all. I think there should be reason and desire to push up as a club and be, and be, be more, more than just that. So I, I I think that's probably that's probably where I would sit on the whole debate. That's very fair on that front. I think, you know, it's all about the funding between one division and the other, really. How teams manage their own exit out of the Premier League. Do you then go for broke the next season or are you just about collecting money? There's no real wrong answer. As Matthew says, it's all about ambition, really. We're just kind of seeing the same cycle of clubs. And I think the group of 26 is exactly right, that we're not seeing, you know, Bar Brentford are kind of, broke through and maybe Huddersfield a few seasons back. It is the same clubs in that kind of extended bracket. So that's just part of it's down to timing, part of it's down to obviously being astute in terms of your finances, but it's a difficult nut to crack really. And if everyone cracked it, then everyone would be a yo-yo club. So it's kind of just the natural order of football. But let's move on. I was going to talk about Chelsea, but we don't really learn anything from a 7-0 win. Maybe Thomas Tuchel's happy that goals are coming across the board, especially with no... Werner or Lukaku in attacks, so that must be pleasing for him. I guess also pleasing. They've only conceded three this season in the league. 
Two of those come against Liverpool and City, so no real other teams are getting any change out of the Blues at the moment, and that must be really ominous for the rest of the division. But let's go to City now, because they made light work of Brighton on Saturday, Matthew. Really, in terms of the game, it was one-sided. There was no real kind of story or needle to it. It was a City kind of win that you'd expect. The only talking point, really, I thought, was the opening goal for the visitors. Was Sanchez impeded by Jesus should the goal have stood? I, I, I think it was a fair, a fair challenge as a way. You know, it's one of those... Jesus, I don't think he... Again, this is where you, you, you can't really judge intent. But again, how I am seeing it. And again, this is where everyone else may see it differently. I think he's not looking to impede Sanchez. I think he's sort of making a fair challenge for the ball. And it just spills out Sanchez's hands. I don't think it was... You know, It's not as if Sanchez, you know, uh, Jesus rather, comes in and barges him out the way you know, from a distance. Um, I think it's sort of close proximity. So I, I think in that situation, it probably should fall on you know Sanchez to, you know, if he doesn't think he's going to be able to hold on to it because of the contact, you know, punch and get rid of it, or you know, maybe leave the ball and try and grab it whilst he's on the ground. So I, I, I personally don't, I don't think it was a foul. So I think good goal in my eyes. Yeah, because on the flip side, if that was ruled out, we'd only be moaning about goalkeepers getting too much protection, which has always kind of been the case over the. Well, for as long as football's invented, there's always been that kind of, well, really, should that have been chalked off? No, I don't think it should. So I think that was the right decision. And it was refreshing to see a goalkeeper not punished for his own mistake. But yeah, it should have just been a bit stronger and commanding of his box. But Max, in terms of Brighton, they're now four without a win. So the waxing lyrical at the start of the season has kind of stopped. Brighton kind of, I wouldn't say reverting to type, but we are sort of seeing the real Brighton now. That's... Nine games played, it's a goal for on average, it's a goal against on average, so things aren't as impressive as they were made out to be a month or so ago. Yeah, yeah, I think they've just been maybe a little bit fortunate because a record of nine goals scored and nine goals against in nine games is very even and consistent, isn't it? Yeah. But you'd argue that if, if, if someone had told you that record... Um, you know, and you hadn't seen the Premier League table, you'd be surprised if you heard they were in fifth. But they're they're winning lots of games by the odd goal and kind of kind of nicking games here and there. Um, and so, yeah, maybe maybe it's a little bit of a false position. I do expect them to to kind of get a little bit further down the table. As I say, when they played Palace, they were profoundly unimpressive um, to me. And I'm not just saying that because I'm biased, but honestly, we we really 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 did dominate them, and they, and they were lucky to get lucky to get a point from that game uh, on the other hand they have been they have been good at, at points this season and you know they they have deserved um several victories that that they've got but yeah i expect them to to kind of as you say revert to type um regress towards the mean a little bit and i expect them to finish in mid table and that's where i expect to see them uh, quite soon yeah i think the next sort of four or five games will be a true litmus test of their season it's been a great start but the fixtures were easier they've got a more difficult run now, so you're kind of sort of thinking they're not going to be favourites in many games, if at all. If they get points, then great. If not, it's kind of what you expected. But as you say, Max, it'll all balance out in the wash and they'll probably be a comfortable mid-table, I don't know, 13th, 14th, come the end. That's a position that Newcastle would love come the end. And Matthew, since we spoke on Tuesday, Steve Bruce is gone. So that seems somewhat inevitable. It's finally happened. There's not a great deal to add because we have really spoken in depth about Newcastle in the last two weeks. So we only really know that Paolo Fonseca is the front runner. That doesn't mean he'll get the job, but is he the right man for it? I, I, I can certainly see. I can certainly see the appeal of him because I think, as we've discussed, there's really two ways that Newcastle can go about it. There's the 
um, firefighter, as it were, not 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 naming these names exactly, but like a Sam Allardyce or a Roy Hodgson, just to see them over the line for this season and then write, yes, thank you for your job, and now we need someone to take us forward, or get that manager in straight away. And someone like Fonseca, I think it's probably... Is is definitely more in the latter latter category. Um, he's got a pretty decent track record when it comes to winning. Um, he's won in Ukraine with Shakhtar Donetsk. He's won titles in Portugal with Braga and Porto. I don't think it was all that successful with Roma, but it's something there. But he's certainly got a winning mentality. And given that the Newcastle owners want you know someone they they want to win trophies and everything he certainly got it certainly seems like a match made in heaven and you know when he's got the the money that will be at his disposal you know more obviously more than he would have got at any of his previous clubs maybe he'll be able to you know experiment and bring in a higher caliber of player to move up the table more so i think it's i think it's a, i think it's a good point me you know if they aren't going to get the big, big name like Antonio Conte has been mentioned or is indeed Dan and some like Fonseca you know Seems like it seems like the right man, so I I think it could be a very very uh, astute appointment. Now, Max, of course, it was Graham Jones who oversaw Newcastle's trip to Palace at the weekend. For you guys, I think really a largely frustrating afternoon, and that's been the case. Well, not just the afternoon, the evenings also, as of late. So, points aren't matching performance at Selhurst Park for yourselves, which will offer some positives, but again, a large amount of frustration. So, what's been your kind of assessment of the last few weeks or maybe even the first quarter of the season is the table lying slightly um yeah i think probably um given the given how we've played and and the performances i think we'd probably say we're a little bit unlucky to to not be kind of middle of the table 10th 11th 12th that kind of position that kind of position i think 15th is a little bit harsh um because we've drawn six games this season, right? And I can say clearly we should have won four of them and arguably we should have won all six of them. Um, and I know you can't, you, you can't what if, because every single fan of every single other team can say, oh, well, if we didn't concede those eight goals and we'd scored those seven chances, you know, we'd be first. And, you know, if my auntie had wheels, she'd be a bike. You, you can't, <laughs> you really, you can't what if. But at the same time, um, you know, four of those draws, uh, Newcastle, Arsenal, Brighton, Leicester. Um, Brighton switched off for 10 seconds at the end. Leicester, two Yoki Manderson mistakes. Um, yeah, um, uh, who are the other ones? Arsenal, two corners. Even Liverpool, when we lost 3-0, they, were literally, they literally scored from three corners, even though it was a really even game. And then Newcastle, another corner, another set piece, and just a, a really good overhead kick finish from Callum Wilson you know if we'd won those four games that we'd drawn we would be fourth if we'd won all the six games that we that we'd drawn we'd be second and look we didn't win those games so it's pointless talking about it um and you know we we drew those games so we need to like accept that and and realize that we have a problem in not seeing out games and not closing them out and not making the most of the possession and chances that we have and that is a problem um, but obviously it's frustrating. Um, definitely the, the performances are warranting more. But, I mean, th- there comes a point where even if the performances are good, if, you, if you're consistently not turning that into points and not making the most of dominance in games, then it doesn't really matter that you're playing better because you might as well not not be dominant if you're not making the most of it. So, I mean, yeah, I, I'd rather be playing football like we are under Vieira than we were under Hodgson. But 
you know, we need to be more clinical in attack. We had hit the bar, um, hit the post, had a goal disallowed for VAR. And then, you know, it's another corner, which is, I think, about eight this season. And we've only conceded um, 14. So there's a real problem with um, conceding set pieces, even though Vieira wouldn't admit it after the match. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're a little bit careless in, in kind of giving teams goals and, and letting teams come away with points and results against us that maybe maybe they don't deserve. So, yeah, I think that that is something that needs to be improved. But overall, I'm still... Uh, enthused and, and encouraged by the way we're playing, we just need to t- turn it into in, into points. We need to be a little bit more ruthless, I think. Well, you mentioned mistakes and errors, and if we're being hypercritical, there has been a decent list of them. So, is that managerial naivety to the Premier League, a newcomer, if you will, and not quite getting to grips with the environment of the English top flight, or is this just consistently players not putting the game plan into play? Um... I think it's potentially a little bit of both. I'd, I'd probably swing more towards the, the latter idea. There have just been some kind of some individual player errors. You know, Anderson um, try losing the ball to Ian Acho and just giving him a one-on-one from, from which he scores. You know, I don't think things like and you know Gay heading over the bar with an absolute sitter of a header in the last minute at West Ham, which would have given us the win. Those kind of things you can't legislate for as a manager. They're they're just kind of individual player errors. Where I would say potentially it is the responsibility of the management is stuff like set pieces because, okay, so the one against Newcastle was a little bit unlucky because there was there was a foul before the the corner that didn't get given and and then the, the corner itself is a little bit unlucky because I think it like hits the back of a Newcastle player's head and then like deflects off Kraft's forehead and goes immediately to Wilson and, you know, he could try that without looking overhead kick 20 more times and it might go in maybe one or two of those times. So that was maybe a little bit, I mean, a really good finish, don't get me wrong. Um, You know, really um, spontaneous thinking and and clever and acrobatic, but a a little bit fortuitous as well. So that, that goal specifically, you know, maybe Palace can say they're a little bit unlucky, but the fact we conceded twice from set pieces against Arsenal three times from set pieces against Liverpool, I think we can say that there's a clear problem here. And I don't know what, you know, what the issue is, to be honest. I don't know if it's a marking issue or if players, or if it's a concentration issue, if if players are switching off. But that, that is the responsibility of the management and the coaches. And they really need to, to drill, you know, into the players, their expectations, because West Ham, for example, are doing really well at set pieces Aston Villa, who've got a designated set-piece coach, are also doing very well at set-pieces. And it is a coaching thing. It's not just luck. You know, pe- people practice these and drill these. And I'm not saying Palace aren't practicing, but that definitely is a responsibility of the coaching. The other stuff, like individual player errors, and we've had a little bit bad, you know, like deflections. We've had a little bit of bad luck here and there. But the set-pieces thing is a problem, and that is um, the fault of the management, basically. Matthew, from an outside point looking in, if you were to give a, I don't know, quarter-term report, what's been your assessment of Patrick Vieira thus far? I think he's, I think he's done okay. I think given the, the the task that was put in front of him and you know, with with the contract situation, having to effectively start from scratch, it was it was always going to be it was always going to be a hard one. But I I think he's done well, and 
you know, obviously there are obviously some major mistakes with the you know with the amount of goals they're conceding late and the you know, draws should have been wins, but he is still relatively new in managerial terms, and this is a new job for him in the Premier League with with again with all the so I think everything the fact that he's you know they're not in the relegation zone I think is a plus. Um, which and if and if I'm being brutally honest, I expected as soon as I saw they were appointing Vieira, I thought that's your money on them for relegation, just because I didn't think he would be the man to sort of uh, take take them over and have to do the rebuild. But he, he's done incredibly well, and there's, there's enough promise there. There's some good, exciting young players that can build for the future. So if I were to give him a grade, do you want a letter or do you want a number? I'll have a grade, please. I'll have a grade. Oh, I'll give him a, I'll give, I'll give him a solid a, a, a B. A, a B I'll give him for. So certainly room to improve, but he's, he's done better than I think we could probably have expected. Okay, Matthew, I like the grey. Stay in London yourself, though, Matthew. Let's go to the east of the capital now, because West Ham got the better of Tottenham. And after last season, there was always going to be the suggestion of, was it a fluke for the Hammers? How did they pull that off? Where they are at the moment and the way they're playing, that's not a fluke at all. They're carrying on where they left off. No, and that yeah, it has sort of uh, come back to bite me on the uh, bite me on the back, as it were, because I did sort of hint that it was a fluke. But they have done incredibly well, you know. I, and I think this could really be them to stay because now they've got into Europe for the first time and have you know turned themselves into an attractive proposition um, to get to get players. They've got the, the the extra money and they can bring in players and all that. I think it, it, this really could be something for them to stay now that they've taken that big step up. Moyes has stabilised them and you know I don't think he's going to be there for the next you know five years or ten years as he did at Everton. But I think he certainly put them in a a decent position where they could really be. I'm not going to say a force like you know challenging for the tie or anything, but I think now they've shown that you know based on what they've managed to start off with, they really could be you know perennial Europa League uh, challengers in the league. This is not in the actual competition, but um, uh, well maybe in the competition yeah. as well. But for a good for, for a good few years moving forward, so I think I think all credit to them. Well, they're certainly upwardly mobile since moving from the Upton Park legacy ground that they had. So. Max, there was obviously a lot of upset when they moved, upset the owners, you know, selling their soul and all of this. Are the ends starting to justify the means? That move, you know, there's always the promise of delivering European football to the London Stadium. That's happened. It doesn't look like a once-off in terms of what they're doing. It looks like it could be established. Of course, there's a lot of football to go this season, but they're three from three in the Europa League. It looks like the gamble has paid off. Yeah, yeah. Um... And... <laughs> It's, it's difficult, right? Because the, I guess the owners, you know, that they wanted to move because it's a, it's a plusher stadium. Um, presumably there's better like corporate facilities, which is, you know, where, where clubs made the real profit margin basically. Um, and, and things like that. And so the owners will probably say the, the, the financial boost from moving to the London stadium it, you know, they would tie that as, as kind of causation to, to things on the pitch happening so well. I don't maybe think that's necessarily true. You know, they have spent money, but they haven't been splashing the cash stupidly like they have previously. Um, they've just kind of invested very kind of cautiously and gradually and wisely, you know, astutely, most importantly. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the the success on the pitch is a result of, the manager and the recruitment more than it is necessarily moving stadium. Now, of course, it does help being in a, um, you know, in, in a bigger and, and more profitable stadium. 
but I, I think that's secondary or maybe even tertiary to to the other factors um, and, you know, to, to, the, to the football matters, which are contributing to them being where they are, basically. Um, yeah, so I think West Ham have done really, really well from a football standpoint. I think a lot of fans are kind of warming to the London Stadium a little bit, but at the same time, it doesn't have the atmosphere and like call me an old school romantic, it doesn't have the atmosphere of Upton Park. No. And many fans, um, it, a lot of people feel like it's still a little bit soulless and artificial. And that's not me saying that as a criticism. As a Palace fan, a lot of West Ham fans feel that. And, um, you know, similarly, I think um, it is it's a kind of a, it's a modern kind of financial uh, decision for clubs to move. And obviously Arsenal did it with Highbury and the Emirates. Um and so, and obviously Tottenham have a really nice, a really lovely ground now as well. And that is going to be, you know, their base for a long, long time. And that's that was a really kind of prudent move for them. But from a kind of a fan's romantic perspective, it, it's not going to hold the same kind of um, soul and atmosphere as, as the old place did. That That's not itself a reason not to do it. But I think, you know, a lot, a lot of fans will still kind of pine for the days um, at, at Upton Park. And yeah, I mean, Sellers part for me, I want that to stay that way forever. And maybe that's me just think kind of being unrealistic as a fan and naive about the financial realities. You know, for example, the stadium does need development, but the way that Palace are doing it, for example, are building higher and more, but on the same site and keeping, you know, it close to the pitch and quite an adversarial, gladiatorial atmosphere. Um, whereas at West Ham, you know you're miles but miles back from the pitch and there's a running track there and it just doesn't feel the the same way so long answer but in conclusion i don't think necessarily the stadium moving stadium has caused them you know has brought them european football directly it's a factor but the football matters is 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 why they're there basically okay let's go to the team they beat because they've moved to well at least a new stadium on the same site whether that's been help or hindrance, you could argue, Matthew. But in terms of their season this season and the way it's panning out, is it going to be consistently one step forward, two steps back? Tottenham won't get anything in the way of form. It's going to be a win here, a loss there, Nuno's head on the chopping block, or we've won, actually things aren't too bad, and just round and round and round and round we go. Is that how Spurs are going to pan out this year? I, I think I think there is the well I don't think it'll be for the whole year I still think there is a case of you know the embedding process um, for for Nuno Espirito Santo especially when you consider again the summer that he had and how late everything was um, with with the managerial search and everything so I think it's still going to be it's it's going to be a tough one I think so long as so long as I can get enough results there to show. I don't think it's necessarily some level of progress, but enough results just to keep them competitive along the way. I think, I think, I think they will be fine. You know, you know, good start to the season has given them a bit of the boost. I think they will be still challenging in and around the European, um, the the European places. It's just a case of whether or not. I think all the emphasis is really going to have to go on the you know on the cup competition to see if they can, you know, try and win a trophy to give Harry Kane. You know, a reason to stay as well. I think that's probably going to be probably going to be the main aim and the main focus will be will be the Conference League. Well, we lost on Thursday there, so I think really that's a difficult one because we've got an A team and a B team, and the B team doesn't know what it's doing at the moment. So um, it's interesting. You're right, Matthew. I think we do need to put a lot of eggs in a cup basket because we need to win a cup. We need to do something. But we look at our squad depth, and there isn't any. It's terrible at the moment. So even just trying to 
win the Europa Conference League and we're meant to be second favourites at the moment and we don't look like that at all. Now with that in mind, Max, Matthew was kind enough to grade your manager. I'm going to let you grade mine. If you were to take the first nine games of the Premier League season, chuck in the Europa games as well, what would you grade Nuno at Spurs? Um, tricky one. I would say C+. C+, yeah. I think I'd go with that. Steady, not necessarily spectacular. Not as bad as people make it out to really be. I know it's quite risk-averse, but he's not completely hopeless. But, you know, I think it's just the wrong man, really, or the only man we could get for the job. But it's looking like a bit of a millstone around his neck. He's looking a little bit out of his depth. There's a lot of time to turn it round. But at the same time, every time we lose, it could be a case of, well, actually, maybe he's only there for a season and we're waiting for someone else to be ready to go again for 22-23. You don't know, really, but... It's all conjecture, but for every time we lose, he seems to be taking a step back and the knives get sharper. But let's stay in North London and start the quickfire round. We've got about six minutes to go and six questions, so let's get going. Matthew, North London, Arsenal. We've got to give them some credit, I guess, begrudgingly, because they're now six unbeaten in the league. A comprehensive win over Villa. They're not looking too bad at the moment, are they? No, and I think it, and it is going to be another case of humble pie because I, because we we Lots on this podcast, we're, yes, so yeah, yeah, it's going to be a lot of I, I, I can't eat any more pie. Because, uh, my waist <laughs> is growing enough as it is. Um, but yeah, I think you know we were very critical of the way they handled their transfer business, and you know, uh, I, you know, arguing, you know, thirty million on Aaron Ramsdale and all this money on Ben White, where you know they're decent players, but they really should have sought out the the attacking side of the pitch first. But now they everything does seem to be clicking, and you know. All credit to, uh, you know, I've had my doubts over Mikel Arteta. I still have my doubts on whether or not he's going to be the long-term boss and whether he can be someone that could deliver trophies on a consistent basis in the way that Wenger did. But for the time being, you have to say that he's done a very good job and the signings have started to click, you know, especially Aaron Ramsdale, who, again, I said, is he really worth £30 million? Well, if he carries on the way he is and he manages to you know, push them up the table, then it would very much be, in, you know, every penny well spent. Yeah, it's weird, though, because they didn't really need him. I thought Bert Leno was quite a competent hand in goal. It's harsh on him, really, but as you say, it might be that, that extra difference. He is proving a lot of people wrong, Ramsdale, and if he keeps doing that, it can only be good for England also. So I think, as you say, Matthew, humble pie is on offer if you want it. Max, in terms of Leicester, the team above them, they also won at the weekend. They got the better of Brentford on Sunday. A great goal from Tielemans. A long overdue goal from James Madison. It's two from two. Their season's getting going. And I think also after their incredible comeback win in the Europa League on Thursday, it's just signs of life at the King Power. Yeah, I think so. And I think that the formation change has really helped them because they were playing with wingers, basically, and Barnes was on the left, who I rate as a player. But on the right, you know, they still haven't kind of figured out who their best player is. Perez is a little bit more of a forward. He kind of drifts in and out of games. Lookman is all right, but, you know, a little bit mercurial, shall we say. And um, Albrighton is, is a little bit um, prosaic. You know, he, he's not super creative, although he does a job. Um, and so th- that formation was a little bit imbalanced and it wasn't making the most out of Vardy when, he, when he's up there by himself. What they've done now is they've gone back to um, kind of wing backs and then... Uh, a couple of, of midfielders and then James Madison in the number 10 slot centrally, which is his best position. He's not best when you force him out wide. 
um, and then two up top, so Ian Atro or Daka next to Vardy. And that is making the most of Madison, who's now back in form. It's making the most of Vardy, who now has a strike partner to kind of bounce off. And, you know, Ian Atro and Daka are really making a, a difference up there as well. Obviously, Daka had that amazing uh, scoring game, I think, against Spartak Moscow in the, in the Europa League. Yeah. And so that, that I think that formation will change. And we've seen them do it before, but that has kind of freed up a couple of their top players. And, yeah, it's, it's looking good for, for Leicester now. Matthew, let's go to another Midlands club, Wolves. They were minutes away from a solid win over Leeds on Saturday, but they were denied by a late penalty. Had they held out, they'd be fifth in the league right now. So is Bruno Large off to a decent start in your eyes? Yeah, I think I think a very decent start. Again, uh, he's, he's had to deal with with a lot of turmoil and obviously getting Raúl Jiménez, who was you know the main man for them for for you know, two or three seasons, having to get him and nurse him back and all the problems with that. But he's got a really decent, you know, not going to say understudy, but a partner in uh, in uh, Huang Li Chan, who's you know, doing absolutely incredible. And I think again. In given the circumstances, I think he's he's done incredibly well, especially given the start that they had, um, as well to bounce back in the way. And again, there were you know some reports of pressure, and you know given the way Foson have handled managers in the past before they got to Nuno, it you know wasn't totally unrealistic to think that he that Bruno could be out of a job. Um, but yeah, to bounce back from all that and get them in this position with you know penalty that again on any other day could have gone the other way. I I think he deserves a, a huge amount of credit. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And Max Leeds, they'll be grateful for a late point. It's not quite working for them at all. Actually, it's not working for them at all, really. Not only that, but Bielsa's going to be sweating on the fitness of Rafinha now as he limped off on Saturday. So it's going from bad to worse in Yorkshire. Yeah, yeah, it, it isn't going great at the moment. Um, although, <laughs> you know, um, the, the fact that Joe Gelhart had such a an exciting cameo from the bench will be a kind of a rare spot of like I think just basically that their squad is a little bit weak, is a little bit thin. Um, and the, the the kind of the, the the cows are coming home to roost. Is it the chickens are coming home to roost? The chi- know, it's, the chi- it's the chickens. The chickens, Max. Good, good. <laughs> cows coming home to roost. <laughs> um, yeah. So <laughs> the um, yeah, it, it, it's basically the 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 weakness of their squad is now affecting them in the same way that that happened to Liverpool last season. Um, you know, they look. They looked very light at fullback. They looked light up front. They looked light in midfield, um, and and they're obviously suffering from that now because you know Phillips out, Bamford out, and 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 you know several others as well. And you can see how Lorente out at centre back, and you can see how much of a difference it makes, and how much they're having to lean on you know youngsters like Cresswell who played at centre back the other week, Gelhart up front, Somerville that that winger, um, and so yeah, I think. It's kind of their own fault, really, for for not having a, a stronger squad because they let the likes of Alioski go um, this summer and things like that, and that they're obviously really struggling with with numbers. That said, once their their big players Phillips and Bamford and you know Rafinha, if he's out this weekend, once all of them are back, um, I think I think they'll 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 be completely fine. Yeah, well, they need to be fine, don't they? Because if they're not careful, they could be pulled into a relegation scrap, which could be the same for the. Last two teams to be mentioned on the show, Southampton and Burnley. Matthew, a share of the points on the South Coast. And if Nathan Redmond had his shooting boots or just any now to where the goal was, it would have been all three for the Saints. It would have. And again, I think Southampton were a team that we were sort of worried about 
uh, heading into the season because you know they they lost Vestergaard and uh, lost um, uh, Danny Ings, so we were thinking, or they could uh, they could struggle. And if they'd lost War Prowse again, I think that really would have been the death now. But they managed to keep hold of him. But yeah, I think you know enough signs there to show that there is you know Southampton will probably survive the season at the end, partly because of, I think there will be three teams worse than them this season. But it, but. If they can just if they can just survive, is that really what they want to be doing, or do they want to be pushing up the table? And then, if they are just surviving, that does make you wonder whether or not Hassan Hutu is going to be the man to take the forward, and whether or not, again, he's someone who's been under pressure for pretty much two years now since the whole Leicester nine uh, 0 at home. But he's managed to get away with it. But whether or not he's going to be the long term person there. Now, Max, there has to be three teams that go down. If there's three teams that are worse than Southampton, are Burnley one of them? Yes, I think probably. Um, whereas Southampton look to have kind of got, a, they're a little bit weak in defence, but they've got a, a spark in attack. Whereas previously, Burnley have always been a little bit goal shy, but, they, uh, but they've got a strong defence. And even that traditional strong defence is not really working at the moment. They're, they conceded 15 goals so far. Obviously, they haven't won a game yet. They might theoretically be losing Tarkovsky to Newcastle as well. He's their best defender. Popes doesn't seem to be in the same kind of form. Chris Wood isn't scoring the goals. You know, McNeil is a good player and Corne is a is a good player as well. And I think if he stays fit, Maxwell Corne, I think he could be maybe the, the player who keeps them up at the expense of potentially Watford or Southampton or Leeds. But it, it, it is looking quite worrying for Burnley, I think. Oh, bloody hell. Do you know what? I completely forgot to write the script about Everton-Watford. I'm really sorry, Watford fans, because after last week, I haven't left you out on purpose, because last week we gave you quite a shooing, didn't you, Matthew? Matthew, have you got any more humble pie left on offer? Um, No, I just... um. No, I don't, because it's a shock result. Um, we had it when Claudio Ranieri was first in charge. We beat Southampton. I'm just not holding out any idea. You can have one result, but I still think Ranieri's not the man to keep him up. OK, then, Max, very, very quickly, from an Everton point of view, that's quite the drubbing at home. Where did it all go wrong? Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, they were kind of giving Man United a, a really good go for the worst defensive performance of this season, weren't they? But, um, yeah, it, it was pretty shoddy. I think they they probably miss um, Yerry Mina. It was, it was pretty... Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty spineless. I've seen that word used um, about the performance because, you know, they were decent in attack, but the defence is really, really... Shoddy, and when you think about the back five, you know Pickford, Coleman, uh, Michael Keane, Godfrey, Dinia, those are good, talented individual players, but they're they're, you know, they really were cut apart by Watford, and Watford have not done amazingly this season. You know, <laughs> uh, Watford scored almost half of their entire goals total this season at the weekend and so yeah it was it was it was really poor from Everton's point of view and that all really concerned Benitez who has a reputation of being a, a solid defensive manager yeah it was just a bizarre second half capitulation wasn't it but that is full time I absolutely promise apologies to Everton and Watford fans I didn't forget you on purpose I just completely forgot but we covered you just in time so Max as always a sterling effort thank you for your time this afternoon yeah thanks very much Matthew, get yourself a lozenge. Thanks for wearing that captain's armband and a pleasure to chat to you once more. Thanks very much. Hopefully my voice will be back to normal next week. Absolutely. Right, cheers, guys, and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye.
This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network.